Welcome to Writers and Ideas, presented by Brisbane Powerhouse and proudly powered by O'Neill Architecture. Presented in partnership with the Wheeler Centre, experience a special conversation between the internationally acclaimed author of Purity, Jonathan Franzen, as he speaks with ABC Radio National's Sarah Kanowski. Here, as Jonathan reflects on the dangerous power of the mother-child bond, Freudian psychoanalysis, and the tough matter of turning his own early disastrous marriage into fiction. We start with a reading from the very beginning of the novel. Oh, pussycat, I'm so glad to hear your voice, the girl's mother said on the telephone. My body is betraying me again. Sometimes I think my life is nothing but one long process of bodily betrayal. Isn't that everybody's life, the girl, Pip, said. She'd taken to calling her mother midway through her lunch break at Renewable Solutions. It brought her some relief from the feeling that she wasn't suited for her job, that she had a job that nobody could be suited for, or that she was a person unsuited for any kind of job. And then after 20 minutes, she could honestly say that she needed to get back to work. My left eyelid is drooping, her mother explained. It's like there's a weight on it that's pulling it down, like a tiny fisherman's sinker or something. Right now? Off and on. I'm, I'm wondering if it might be Bell's palsy. <laughs> Whatever Bell's palsy is, I'm sure you don't have it. If you don't even know what it is, pussycat, how can you be so sure? I don't know, because you didn't have Graves' disease, hyperthyroidism, melanoma. It wasn't as if Pip felt good about making fun of her mother but their dealings were all tainted by moral hazard, a useful phrase she'd learned in college economics. She was like a bank too big in her mother's economy to fail, an employee too indispensable to be fired for bad attitude. Some of her friends in Oakland also had problematic parents, but they still managed to speak to them daily without, without undue weirdnesses transpiring because even the most problematic of them had resources that consisted of more than just their single offspring. Pip was it, as far as her own mother was concerned. Well, I don't think I can go to work today, her mother said. My endeavor is the only thing that makes that job survivable, and I can't connect with the endeavor when there's an invisible fisherman sinker pulling on my eyelid. Mom, you can't call in sick again. It's not even July. What if you get the actual flu or something? And meanwhile, everybody's wondering what this old woman with half her face drooping onto her shoulders doing bagging their groceries. You have no idea how I envy you your cubicle, the invisibility of it. Let's not romanticize the cubicle, Pip said. <laughs> this is the terrible thing about bodies. They're so visible, so visible. Pip's mother, though chronically depressed, wasn't crazy. She'd managed to hold on to her checkout clerk job at the New Leaf Community Market in Felton for more than 10 years. And as soon as Pip relinquished her own way of thinking and submitted to her mother's, she could track what she was saying perfectly well. The only decoration on the gray segments of her cubicle was a bumper sticker. At least the war on the environment is going well. Her colleagues' cubicles were covered with photos and clippings, but Pip herself understood the attraction of invisibility. Also, she expected to be fired any month now, so why settle in? Have you given any thought to how you want to not celebrate your not birthday, she asked her mother. Frankly, I'd like to stay in bed all day with the covers over my head. I don't need a not birthday to remind me I'm getting older. My eyelid is doing a very good job of that already. Why don't I come make you a cake and I'll come down and we can eat it? You sound sort of more depressed than usual. I'm not depressed when I see you. Ha, too bad I'm not available in pill form. Could you handle a cake made with stevia? I don't know, stevia does something funny to the chemistry of my mouth. There's no fooling a taste bud in my experience. Sugar has an aftertaste too, Pip said, although she knew that argument was futile. Sugar has a sour aftertaste that the taste bud has no problem with because it's built to report sourness without dwelling on it. The taste bud doesn't have to spend five hours registering strangeness, strangeness, which was what happened to me the one time I drank a stevia drink. But I'm saying the sourness does linger. There's something very wrong when a taste bud is still reporting strangeness five hours after you had a sweetened drink. Do you know that if you smoke crystal meth even once, your entire brain chemistry is altered for the rest of your life? That's what stevia tastes like to me. 
I'm not sitting here puffing on a meth stem, if that's what you're trying to say. I'm saying I don't need a cake. No, I'll find a different kind of cake. I'm sorry I suggested a kind that's poison to you. I didn't say it was poison. It's simply that stevia does something funny to your mouth chemistry, yeah. Pussycat, I'll eat whatever kind of cake you bring me. Refined sugar won't kill me. I didn't mean to upset you, sweetheart. Please. No phone call was complete before each had made the other wretched. <laughs> the problem, as Pip saw it, the essence of the handicap she lived with, the presumable cause of her inability to be effective at anything, was that she loved her mother, pitied her, suffered with her, warmed to the sound of her voice, felt an unsettling kind of non-sexual attraction to her body, was solicitous even of her mouth chemistry, wished her greater happiness, hated upsetting her, found her dear. This was the massive block of granite at the center of her life, the source of all the anger and sarcasm that she directed not only at her mother, but more and more self-defeatingly of late, at less appropriate objects. When Pip got angry, it wasn't really at her mother, but at the granite block. Thank you. Thank you very much, Jonathan Franzen. This new novel, Purity, centres partly on Andreas Wolf, a man who has transformed himself into a famous internet outlaw, whose brand is Purity, and his press is, as a result, as universally as good as Aung San Suu Kyi and Bruce Springsteen's. Andreas's brand might be purity and innocence, but it seems to me that this novel is more about the opposite of those qualities. It's to a large degree about guilt and experience and maturity. And I hoped that we could start with the title. We've had this move from freedom to purity. Did you, uh, did you have the title before the story? Yes. I've got a little thing for ironic titles going now. The book that preceded this was this weird thing I wrote in footnotes um, with a couple of friends to some translations of Karl Kraus, the Viennese satirist, had these notions of linguistic purity. He actually made a connection between morality and the kind of language you use. And he, and he pursued this notion through 40 years as a journalist and satirist. And I was, as a kid, that was exactly what I wanted. He was so angry. And he had this notion that there was this fallen, once pure world that had been basically ruined by capitalism and, um, uh, and journalism, media, and by technology. And I'm no longer so into Krauss, but when I went back and looked at some of those essays, I thought, he didn't even know the half of it. He was, he was, he was writing about newspapers. and really he should have been writing about the commercial internet. And once I started thinking about why I'd been so attracted to him as a young person and why he kind of left me cold as a 50-year-old, um, I realized that it was that, that quest for some sort of purity that had, is a young person thing. And then I looked around and saw it popping up all over the world, whether in Jihad or uh, the Tea Party in the US or the Pirate Party in Europe. Um, Silicon Valley has this notion of, you know, if we could just be completely 100% digital, uh, like these extreme positions that just are so attractive if you're 19 and make me so impatient <laughs> now. And this novel uh, begins with Pip, like other of your novels, Jonathan, it moves from consciousness to consciousness, creating this kind of interconnected, multi-perspective view of the world. Pip, when we first meet her, a bit like her Dickens namesake, is penniless and confused about her origins. Uh, she doesn't know where she comes from. Yeah, her mother, the mother we just heard a little bit of, uh, the problematic mother, <laughs> raised her in a cabin in the mountains uh, near Santa Cruz, California. Uh, mountains I know well um, and really wanted to write about. Um, but basically, it was, it was clear that her mother had changed her identity, had gone into hiding, and uh, ref has always refused to say what her real name is and who the father was. And, um, and Pip actually couldn't really care less about having a dad. But she is poor and has a student debt. 
So uh, what kind of sets the book in motion is she thinks maybe if she could find this father, he would give her money. And there's the missing father, but the ever-present, omnipresent mother. And in the section you just read, Jonathan, it, it concluded with that wonderful phrase that the essence of the handicap she lived with, the presumable cause of her inability to be effective at anything, was that she loved her mother. And this struck me as a very Franzen-like idea because it's not that her mother is nuts, it's not that she hates her mother, it's this being tied to someone who is destructive to you, but you are bound to and have a, a kindness towards. Um, thank you. <laughs> I, I'm re-sifting that in my memory looking for the question. Um, the question, the question is, if we're moving into mothers, because I think to my reading of this book, I know that there's been a lot of conversation about the depiction of the internet and Andreas Wolf, and, but it seemed, it seemed to me, especially the second time I read it, were these crazy mothers, and the first one we meet is Pip's mother, who is so suffocatingly smothering of her daughter. Yeah, well, her mother is a big child. Um, and uh, actually is somebody who seems never to have let go of this notion of purity. And this endeavor she mentions is some sort of vaguely spiritual um, yoga Buddhist kind of practice that she's invented for herself. Um, and, you know, what could be purer than living in the mountains of Santa Cruz and being a vegan and not even eating refined sugar? Uh, so she's she's like, she's like the, this gray-haired woman who never grew up. Um, and, it's, and so Pip, from the age of six, has had to be the adult in the house. Uh, not entirely unfamiliar phenomena, phenomenon for children of the um, 60s and 70s. The section that begins purity with where we, we are in, in Pip's experience is um, her mother says to her, I have the right to love you more than anything in the world, which Pip makes this kind of cry in psychic self-defense. No, you don't. No, you don't. No, you don't. No, you don't. Right. Well, yes, it has become, it has become a problem that it's really, really, really hard to be the person that another person depends on utterly. Pip's mom basically said, I don't need anybody but you. Again, great for her, tough to be Pip. Uh, but yeah, to your larger point, yeah, I, uh, there, there did emerge kind of a compare and contrast situation with the various moms in the book. Um, and uh, and some, some nutty and some actually probably mentally ill. And one of them not, one of them neither. Um, Tom's mother. Mm. But before we get to Tom, the novel swings from Pitt back to East Berlin during the dying days of the Cold War to show us sort of Andreas Wolf in his youth, in his 20s, where he's bedding many young, attractive dissidents. But he's got his own kind of strange sexual confusion stemming from his own relationship with his mother and the, the parallels are made between Hamlet and Gertrude. But in the early years, they're sort of besotted with one another. The, the depiction that Andreas gives of his early sort of prepubescent childhood with his mother is one of mutual infatuation. Yeah, yeah. So Andreas grew up in uh, about as privileged a place as you can be in, uh, could have been in, in East Germany. Um, there, are, there are actually two East German mothers. One of them is Tom's mother, who fled. But there were these people who stayed behind, and some of them managed to get rather privileged positions, including Andreas's parents. And yes, there was, they, they were besotted with each other. And <clears throat> yeah, um, I wanted to try to do um, a character who was a, who was a big figure. He's just sort of born to, to succeed, Andreas. Mm. Everything he touches, even when he, I mean, he's a terrible risk taker. He does, he kills somebody. And that's, you know, it's not even the biggest of the risks he takes. He keeps taking these risks and he keeps getting away with it, partly because he's compelling. And it's, you can posit as a writer, okay, well, this character is, has this marvelous, charismatic effect on people. You can just say that, and you can then go into another character and say, 
oh, this person has a charismatic effect on me. But it doesn't really add up unless you get into the psychology of the kind of person who has that effect on people. And often, often there's some pretty weird stuff in the basement with the, the charismatic sort of almost cult-like leader. There's, they're great, but they're also terrible, which is sort of, we shouldn't sling too many psychological terms around, but narcissism is in the picture. <laughs> Narcissistic personality disorder is in the, in the picture with both the mother and her son. The thing about Andreas is he's really deeply disturbed. And the thing about parentage, and the thing, I mean, the first line of his, of his childhood recollections is it's so easy to blame the mother. And it's so easy to blame the mother because you got your genes from the mom and you spent your early years with the mom. And moms get a hard, you know, they, they get a sort of a tough rap in literature because it's so easy to blame the mother. He is two things additionally. He's somebody who who never wants to stop laughing at himself and who refuses to be dishonest. It's like, that's, that's, that's what he holds onto is I don't tell lies even to myself. And when he thinks about it, he realizes, you know, maybe mom was fine. Maybe this is all me. So those are some of the things I was trying to, I, I was just trying to make a complicated character. On Books and Arts on RN Summer, I'm Sarah Konoski. And you're listening to a conversation I had with Jonathan Franzen discussing his latest novel, Purity. We're talking about one of the key characters in Purity, Andreas Wolf, who's an East German dissident and later becomes an internet outlaw campaigning for transparency and justice while desperately trying to avoid that in his private life. Back to the Brisbane powerhouse. The complicated character comes out certainly from this you know, fairly intense relationship the two of them has and that gets very weird as he goes into adolescence and she's sort of unwilling to let go of the sort of smothering aspect that she had when he was smaller. This sort of emotional material, I think you use a term elsewhere, Jonathan, this radioactive material, is the question as a writer, obviously, is how to handle it, what tone to come at it with and... The tone that you use often in this book, as in your others, is this, you know, we heard it in the reading, this great comic satiric tone, which seems to me, even in this really intense stuff of this mother and child relationship, allow uh, entertainment and allow a lightness there for the reader. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's easier to stand up in front of an audience and read something if it has some humour in it, because you can hear a laugh or two and you know that people are paying attention. So there, it's attractive just on that very, very basic level to a writer. Um, well, it's also an observation that the funniest people I know are the most depressed people I know. And in, among that cohort, which is not small, I know a lot of depressed people um, because I know a lot of writers and artists. Uh, the people who experienced something you could call abuse as children are at the funny end of that rather funny cohort. That, and these are people who've, who've figured out a way to cope, and the way they cope is laughing. Um, and they find the darkest stuff hilarious. And I was not abused in any way as a child, and yet I also, maybe just from associating with so many dark people all my life, um, also find, my impulse is to find extreme situations, even psychologically violent situations, kind of hilarious at some level. Uh, because what are you going to do? I mean... Well, it's interesting because Andreas, as you say, is this complicated character who is um, committed to honesty. And although often he's involved in these sort of um, setups that are, are comic, he himself doesn't seem to have much of a sense of humour. Oh, come on. <laughs> really? Really? Um, it seems quite not one of those funny East Germans to me. Uh, you're, you're, you're leafing through looking for a gag from Andreas, Jonathan. Well, um, when his mother says, my family has a history of emotional, emotional distress, I'm afraid that some of that may have been passed on to you. He says, skipping a generation, of course. I mean, that's, a, that's not a... 
okay. I f <laughs> I'm not going to fight you on it. He's, he's not a barrel of laughs. As you mentioned in passing, and as anyone who's read the book, as I'm sure many of you have, know that the sort of centre of his trajectory as a character is this murder that he commits still as a young man when he's sort of fallen in love with this young girl, this 15-year-old who's being abused by her stepfather and he, he kills him. And that act then propels him sort of through a whole series of consequences that he becomes the unwitting spokesperson or the unexpected spokesperson for a sort of new transparency once the Berlin Wall comes down and uh, found something called the Sunlight Project. Can you tell me, tell us about the Sunlight Project? Yes. So, so he has this phrase, sunlight is the best disinfectant, um, which of course is ironic since he's sitting on enormous secrets that he has no intention of sunlight ever touching. If somebody is talking about sunlight, you know pretty much they have something they don't want anyone to know about. It's, it, that, that didn't seem like an original stroke of inspiration on my part to give him a secret and have him be Mr. Sunlight. Um, it's, uh, that's, a, that's a very old literary device. Nevertheless, it's a, um, the thing evolves once, once he discovers the internet, again by chance, he's, a, he finds his way there because he's really inter suddenly interested in the fact that you can get porn on the internet and that leads him to, oh, hey, wait a minute, this is kind of a powerful medium, what can we do with this? Um, so he's, he's, become, uh, he's become sort of a, a world clearinghouse for secrets. And eventually there's a, there's a structure, eventually they, they find a place to set up in Bolivia and uh, because he's kind of not welcome in most other countries at this point. And there he, um, he operates, he, 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 he traffics in secrets large and small uh, with an extraordinary, extraordinarily good looking bunch of interns and some, and some people to do his, his serious uh, tech work for him because he's, you know, he's not an Assange-like hacker. He's, he's an inspirational leader. And although he mouths this idea that secrecy was oppression and transparency freedom, what he really believes, or what we see that he really believes about secrecy and privacy is something quite different. Mm -hmm. He's got a nice line about it being, if you don't have an inner secrecy or privacy, it's like being a cat or a stone. A thing in the world, yeah. How do you know your? How do you know you have a self? How do you know you have an identity? Um, if everything is transparent, like if there's no difference between inside and out, um, like how do you? You pretty much are obliged to take selfies of yourself all day uh, to to keep like persuading yourself that you exist. <laughs> um, so, and, and this, is, this is partly what has happened to him. He's become an internet figure and um, he becomes trapped in a persona, which can happen um, if you devote ever more obsessive attention to cultivating an online persona, you can begin to feel that that persona is realer than you are. So, um, by the time he, he expresses those opinions about the importance of secrets, and also notes that how do we establish intimacy and trust? It's by sharing secrets. But if you share secrets with everyone, surely you're not on intimate terms and trusting terms with everyone. Um, you again have a little problem with like, well then what is the foundation for the trust, like close friendship? What do you do when you're making a close friend? You're, you're saying, oh, or, or falling in love with someone. It's like secrets start coming out. You, you, you tell things to that person that you won't tell other people. Mm. So anyway, but by the time he's voicing those thoughts, he's already pretty well down the road to being a complete raving maniac. This, um, the, the so it has to be taken with a grain of salt. Well, the cracking up of Andreas Wolf is a really interesting development, I think, um, where he does seem to start to split apart between this uh, external internet persona and his own internal knowledge of himself. I worry that we're verging into spoiler territory here. But I, will, I will tread carefully. Thank you. What I'll ask though is, is a bigger question, I suppose, about creating a character like this, is one who is 
reprehensible in many ways. He's murdered someone, he's a narcissist, he's got a whole series of sort of pretty exploitative relationships. And yet as a reader we feel this sympathy and there I suppose is this great magic that you do as a novelist where you create a character who does not fit any of the categories that we assess people by in our everyday life, but in a book that we start to, to feel this enormous sympathy for. Well, I'm glad you took it that way. I don't think everyone did. Um, I, I, lo- I, can't, I can't do a major character if I don't love that character, if I, if it's, if I haven't found something to love. So it, to me, it's, it's surprising and disappointing when people say, oh, I loathed that person. How could you write about that person who was so loathsome? And it's like, yeah, well, not loathsome to me. Um, is really all I can say, but uh, so thank you for finding him sympathetic. Uh, it's, it's one of the primary projects of the novel, empathy, creation of empathy with, with sorts of people you might not have thought to have empathy mm-hmm. for or sympathy for. And uh, arguably, this, is, this goes to Jane Smiley's idea that the novel is fundamentally a liberal form, that it arose with, basically, liberal democracy came along at the same time as the novel did. No accident, Smiley maintains, because because the premise of liberal democracy is, you know, that, that other person's a person too, and you should think about what it's like to be that person. Well, of course, that's, that is sort of the, the novelistic project. And it becomes almost a, it's not a, well, it is a game, and it's a game I love playing, and a game I take very seriously, writing novels. Uh, and it's, I've been fantastically lucky to get to spend my life playing a game. Um, but as you proceed in the game, it becomes, it's sort of like you're going to, it's, it's like levels in a video game. You, let me take a, somebody who's re, even harder to have empathy for and see if I can do it nonetheless. And that's a challenge, you know, it keeps me in the game. It keeps me, uh, and I really felt I was pushing the limit in this book. There are a lot of extreme characters who I love all of, but um, recognized that I was probably going to lose some people. And, and that's one reason I had a variety of main characters because maybe you hate that one, but you don't hate this other one. Um, and you can be happy when the hated one is, goes off and we get the loved one. I like the idea of you as, sal- as a salesman sort of opening your jacket. You yeah, like well, that one, I got this sort one. Sort of, yeah. Um, sort of. There's, um, you know, what you're saying, Jonathan, I think one of the things that struck me about Andreas is although he is engaged in this really extreme behaviour and, and his experiences of acting out are of a one very far end of the spectrum of human behaviour. Of course, we all see in the, uh, the id let loose, I think, ourselves as humans. And maybe unexpectedly, I was reminded of a wonderful moment in your memoir, The Discomfort Zone, where you moon, do you have that word in America, flash, pull your pants down as a child to your neighbours, your little girls across the road. You do this into some spontaneous We're childhood casually act. casually dis- discussing what for much of my life was the most shameful moment of my life. <laughs> but it was that, that's where you're sort of Andreas because you have that moment and then immediately you race off in horror and can't believe that you've done this. And I think the, the phrase you use is something like, I've got to lock that guy up. Like that guy is so dangerous. And I think we all, you know, the thing is Andreas didn't lock that guy up, but we all have that whatever moment it was at whatever point of our life of that's, that's the guy, if I don't have that, you know, super ego working hard, that's the guy who's going to get out. Yes, and there is... Um, y- 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 we're beginning to sound a little Freudian here, and, you know, Freud is laughable and easily discredited in any number of ways, and yet it wasn't like Freud was just making the stuff up. If nothing else, he was drawing on people who'd made really good stuff up, like Dostoevsky and (laughs) Sophocles. The idea that you actually, (laughs) that you might have different parts that you're not the unitary persona you would like to present. Um, The idea that you're not in control of what all these parts are are doing and that these parts are in conflict and that um, 
and that you that you do stuff for completely unaccountable reasons that are really actually not in your interest. All of there's a whole body of pretty basic observations about the way human beings actually operate that I fear have become kind of unfashionable. It's now, you know, God, the discourse of brain chemistry and the, the, the oh, we will soon be able to map exactly what's going, you know, all of that stuff. Uh, it, it's so, it's, it's, you know, you, now we have to wait a hundred years for you to become as smart as we were a hundred years ago about the way human beings really work. So there is a, there's a certain side project in my work of trying to keep alive the notion that there are these demonic forces and that you might feel you have a really bad thing in you as Andreas does feel and that your entire life is spent fighting this terrible thing you have in you. Jonathan Franzen speaking about his most recent novel, Purity. I'm Sarah Konoski and you're with Books and Arts on RN Summer. Reading a Jonathan Franzen novel often feels like you're reading about three books in one and then suddenly another novel appears. And so it is with Purity. Following on from the story of Pip in America and then Andreas in East Berlin, we meet Tom and Annabelle. Tom and Annabelle fall in love at college, get married, and then things, well, they go downhill. This very bitter, very funny depiction of a mutually destructive marriage is in many ways at the heart of purity. Here's Jonathan Franzen reading from the very start of the Tom and Annabelle section in his novel. My affair with Annabelle had begun as soon as our divorce decree came through. In exchange for stipulating that I'd abandoned her, abandonment being one of the few grounds for divorce that New York state law recognized, and the one that Annabelle felt best captured the wrong she'd suffered, I'd been permitted to reclaim our valuable rent-controlled tenement in East Harlem while Annabelle went off to live by herself in the woods of New Jersey. Since there could be no talk of inflicting Manhattan on her, I had to take the bus across 125th Street and the subway up to 168th, followed by a much longer and invariably nauseating bus ride over the Hudson and out through increasingly raw developments to the hills northwest of Netcong. I'd made this trip twice in February, twice in March, and once in April. On the last Saturday in May, my phone rang around 7 in the morning, not long after I'd gone to bed drunk. I answered it only to stop the ringing. Oh, Annabelle said, I thought I was going to get your machine. I'll hang up and you can leave a message, I said. No, this is only going to be 30 seconds. I swear I will not get drawn in again. Annabelle, I just wanted to say that I reject your version of us. I utterly, utterly reject it. That's my message. <laughs> Couldn't you have rejected my version by just never calling me again? <laughs> I'm not getting drawn in, she said, but I know the way you operate. You interpret silence as capitulation. You don't remember me promising I'd never interpret your silence that way the very last time we spoke. I'm hanging up now, she said, but at least be honest, Tom, and admit that your promise was a low trick, a way of having the last word. I laid the phone on my mattress next to my ear and mouth. Are we at the point yet where I get blamed for this conversation lasting more than 30 seconds, or do I still have that to look forward to? <laughs> no, I'm hanging up, she said. I wanted to say for the record that you're completely wrong about us, but that's all, so... I'm gonna hang up. Okay then, goodbye. But she could never hang up and I could never bear to do it for her. I'm not blaming you, she said. You did consume my youth and then abandon me, but I know you're not responsible for my happiness out here, although in fact I'm having a good time and things are going pretty well, unbelievable as it may sound to a person who considers me, quote, unequipped to deal with the, quote, real world. Consume my youth and then abandon me, I quoted back, but this is not a provocation. You just wanted to leave a 30-second message, which I would have done, but you reacted. I reacted, Annabelle. Do I need to point this out? I reacted to your picking up a telephone and dialing my number. Right, I know, because I'm so needy, right? I'm so pathetically needy. I couldn't have named one instant of happiness or ease from our previous togetherness binge four weeks earlier. I emerged from these binges feeling bruised and harrowed, 
with worrisome bomb craters in my memory, but also a vague, sick craving for a do-over. Look, I said, do you want to get together? Do you want me to come out? Is that why you called? No, I do not want to get together. I want to hang up the phone if you would please just let me. Usually in the past, though, when you've called, I said, you've started out saying you didn't want to get together, and then after a couple of hours on the phone, it's come out that you did actually all along underneath want to get together. If you want to come out and see me, she said, you should have the decency to say so in so many words. And by then, of course, like any polite man who wants to spend time with a woman he respects, instead of making your invitation some sort of icky accusation, by then, of course, I said, it's gotten to be pretty late in the day, which means that by the time we actually do get together, which is what you've secretly wanted all along, it's very late. And when we then inevitably go ahead and sleep together, instead of insidiously twisting things around, she said, so that it looks like my neediness rather than yours, my lousy life rather than your own lousy life, inevitably go ahead and sleep together. I don't want to sleep with you. I don't want to see you. That's not why I called. I called to say a simple thing, which it's three or four in the morning before we actually get around to the sleeping part of sleeping together, which with three hours of travel and a workday ahead of me has tended in the past to become kind of a bad scene, is all I'm trying to remind you. If you want to come out and go for a hike with me, she said, that would be very nice. I would like that. But you have to say it's what you want. But I didn't call you, I said. But you were the one who brought up getting together, so just be honest with me now. Is this something you want? Not unless you want it and you say so like a human being. But that perfectly mirrors my own sentiments, so... Look, I called, she said. You could at least, what could I do? Do you think I'm going to harm you if you let your defenses down for one tiny half second? I mean, what do you think I'm going to do? Make you my slave? Force you to be married to me again? It's a hike, for God's sake. It's just a hike. Simply to avoid the two-hour version of this conversation, wherein party A tried to prove that party B had made the, fight, the fatal statement that prolonged the conversation in the first place, and party B challenged party A's version of events, and this in turn, there being no actual transcript, compelled party A to reconstruct from memory the conversation's overture, and party B to offer a reconstruction that differed from party A's in certain crucial respects, which then necessitated a time-devouring joint effort to collate and reconcile the two reconstructions. I agreed to go out to New Jersey and take a hike. so terrible. It's so painful. It's even more painful having you read it than reading it. <laughs> it is a truly, truly horribly convincing portrait of a relationship. Um, Annabelle is a, a magnificent creation who, um, who has a whole set of rules. That, I mean, that the profound... Uh, centre of her being is whether she's being hurt or being hurt or someone is doing the wrong thing to her, in particular Tom, with whom she was married. But when they first get together, even in the early sort of, I don't know if we should call it a honeymoon phase, but the early stages of their relationship, she has very clear rules about everything, including the fact that when it comes to sex, she can only achieve satisfaction in the three days when the moon was fullest. You must have had so much fun writing this section. Uh, fun is an interesting word for the time I had writing this section. Um, normally I like to try to do a thousand words a day when things are rolling along, and um, this was a sort of one page a day section. Uh, yeah. Okay, well, I mean, I had, a, I, I had some experience with that kind of relationship. Um, but uh, I too married young. I married too young. Um, uh, and yet, I, you know, your own life is not really, it doesn't, it's not the stuff of fiction exactly. Um, and so to try to, to, try to find, um, basically to exaggerate it and still somehow stay within some sort of boundaries of realism. That was really hard work. Mm -hmm. I was trying to do something funny, or at least something that people who had been 
been involved in a relationship they can't get out of might find funny. Um, but no, it was actually really hard. It's some, um, I know Andreas that... had lots of fun with, but this one... Mm. This one, we just get the fun as the readers. Yeah, I mean, that's as it should be. Yeah. From a utilitarian perspective, I could suffer almost infinitely <laughs> if I could only make like 300 people happy with what I wrote. <laughs> I know that um, Christina Stead's novel, The Man Who Loved Children, is important to you, Jonathan, and that the tone of that seemed connected here, the sort of the internal dynamics, dynamics between two people who cannot let each other go but are just disastrous for Sam one another. Sam and Penny, yeah. Exactly, yeah. Yes. Um, I mean, who knows what, I, what I've stolen from Christina Stead. Uh, all's, all's fair, ultimately, and... That was, a, that was an incredibly... Just to get that tone right, you know, what we were talking about earlier, right, how, how to deal with this material in a way that is not just off-putting for a reader or just so heavy for a reader. Exactly. And, and, and a book like the gigantic book, Man Who Love Children, that's, um, that's, an, that's an important book because you see it can be done. It's like it, you don't even have to take anything from it. You don't have to be inspired by it particularly, but just to know, wow, it, this is doable you can write at that level of psychological violence and still make it funny. That's, that's just great to know when you're trying to do it yourself. And as you say, you've written about this difficult first marriage in memoir form. Did dealing with your biography, your own biography in that way, allow you to treat it perhaps more lightly or, or more satirically when it came to fiction? Wow, it's a sore, it's a sore subject. I mean... My ex-wife is a human being, and I and I really I don't like to talk much about the autobiographical sources. I there was a very it was very carefully done when I did it in nonfiction because I'm trying to protect people as well as I can, and of course I can't protect them because I'm a writer and there's blood on the floor surrounding pretty much every writer. Um, but it was a useful thing to to feel constrained to make everything up because you can do a lot more then. You're allowed to do a lot more if you're not drawing on direct facts. You know, you're writing a memoir, well, here was a dull patch, uh, and really the only option for the memoirist is, well, two options. You can leave it in and write a boring memoir, or you can just omit it. Whereas if it's, there's a sort of a dull patch in, in, a, in fiction, we just like, take a look at it and see what can make it better. You throw in like a fake nuclear warhead or something. I do. If there's, do, a, if there's I do. a dull action <laughs> <Yeah>. fiction. <laughs> I do have a, um, a missing nuclear warhead in this book too. But that, that's, they're almost purely for comic purposes. We are about to turn to you guys to, to ask Jonathan questions. But I just wanted to come back to Pip with whom we began. Because um, it struck me that that final section without giving away what's happening plot-wise in terms of its emotional tone. It, it is, and, and this reminded me of freedom and in a different way perhaps the corrections, this sort of interest in maturity or asking what is maturity and it seems to be what Pip is, is trying to find a shape for that's right for her. Uh, one way I was thinking about the book was a, of kind of a series of Bildungsroman, Romane, uh, what is, how do you say that in English? Building romans, it sounds wrong. Um, but, but obviously Pip being the only person who's a, main character is a young person in the present, she, she has to carry most of that Bildung's mm. weight. Um, yeah, I mean, if you, put, if you put purity on the cover of the book and you mean it ironically uh, and skeptically, um, you're sort of obliged to to point some way past the moral absolutism of youth. And that is kind of what maturity, for me, entails. It's recognizing, you know, you're never going to be perfect. Other people are never going to be perfect. Uh, like, get over it. <laughs> um, and... That came out sounding really simplistic. <laughs> it's still worth reading the novel, even if you've just got the takeaway message there. It's still <laughs> There's some rich suspense toward the end. Um, it's, it's, yeah, there's, a, there's a, the reflections Pip has on um, where she comes to herself in ideas about 
what it is to hold secrets and hold privacy and to allow vulnerability is very different from where she started and was um, a satisfying way for the book to conclude, I felt. Well, thank you. I mean, I, that's what you, not to be too mechanistic about it, but really you picture the novelist in the little room and the novelist is saying, something had better change. <laughs> between point A and point B. Um, so I, I don't take any enormous credit for that insight, but thank you very much. And, I, and I, really, I think we should have a hand. This is a hard job you had, and I, and I, I have not, I don't remember talking to someone on stage who's um, been more careful to try to uh, take the book uh, as a whole for what it is. I really appreciate that. Thank you. A very generous Jonathan Franzen on stage at the Brisbane Powerhouse where we were discussing his latest novel, Purity. I'm Sarah Konoski and you're with Books and Arts on RN. We then went to questions from the crowd and the first asked Jonathan about the role he sees for journalism in the age of internet leakers like his fictional Andreas Wolff. Right. Um, there are two of the five main characters of the book are, are journalists, um, working journalists, and uh, one of them is really pissed off at the the the, the notoriety and the um, the kind of adulation of the leaker. But of course, her her boyfriend, um, who's the editor of this uh, investigative journalism outlet, says, "Well, let's let's not get carried away. There's room for both, isn't there?" And, you know, we, with the Panama Papers, for instance, um, the document dump in itself is kind of useless. Um, so it's really great to have these, to have journalists there to help us understand what these documents might mean. Whenever I'm tempted to, to dismiss the leakers out of hand, uh, I think of what my friend Rachel Kushner reminded me, which is we really could have used a leaker in 2003 before we invaded Iraq. I, didn't, I don't want to take sides, and I especially don't want to take sides in a novel, but if there's a soapbox anywhere in the book, it's, that I, it, it's on this subject. I wanted at least to include as a story element the question of what's gonna to happen to journalism uh, because we have not yet figured out very good ways to pay for something that even all but the most extreme Silicon Valley people think we really actually do need journalists. Hi, sorry, I've got a microphone, so I'm going to ask the question. Um, Jonathan, my question's a bit basic. So, I mean, I'm, I'm really uh, amazed by how well all the stories and all the characters kind of interleave. How do you actually research and plan something like that? How do you make it happen? And how much happens on the fly? Uh, a lot of it's on the fly, actually. Um, Figuring it out takes a couple of years of full-time struggle, so it's really hard to give a, real, a quick answer to the question. On the subject of research, uh, I, I hate doing it and try to avoid it is the quick answer. Just I feel it's better to make stuff up and then check the facts afterward. <laughs> But sometimes you, you know so little about your subject that you can't even make it up. Example, so I, I knew I wanted this East German character, Andreas. I've been thinking about this character of Andreas in some fashion for 35 years. He's, he's been in my head forever. But I didn't really know anything about life in East Germany, uh, apart from the movie versions and the kind of um, the stock, uh, you know, the terrible Stasi and the totalitarian state and all of that stuff. Um, so I... I went to uh, my best East German friend, who's a very good friend, and said, okay, so here's what I need. And I gave her the little checklist of what Andreas had to be able to do, and she just laughed and said, that person is completely impossible. <laughs> completely impossible. Could not under any circumstances have existed in East Germany. Good to know, before I'd <laughs> written a whole section, um, and, and she was nice enough uh, to, you know, we had dinner a couple of times and she said, let's figure out how we could make as much of that as possible work. She was the one who said, well, he would probably be working for a church. He'd probably be living at the church. And, and really just going, so that's, 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 that, that was actual research. 
But it was research that didn't involve lots of reading, <laughs> um, so it was better. It's good to be disappointed. Okay, you can't do it that way, but probably the way I, my first thought was not the best thought. My first thought was more cliched, and actually encountering the obstacle of reality forced me to invent, I hope, somewhat more interesting solutions for it. When you say that it takes years of work, that thinking through, what does that look like? Like, are you just sitting oh, in a room horrible. doing that? Or have you got, <laughs> kind of, are you yeah. on a computer? Or have you got post-it notes? What, no, I... I um, what would David Attenborough find if he went to make a nature documentary of France and in the wild? <laughs> uh, he'd find a, a bare room on the University of Santa Cruz campus uh, with a nine-year-old, like, 10-pound Dell computer in it. Um, and uh, where basically day after day, simply to avoid the feeling that I've done absolutely nothing, I would turn the computer on and say, okay, I'm gonna try again. Um, let me just start by listing 12 things, I, really important questions I don't have answers to. And just kind of, you know, just this laborious, I have, Thousands of pages of single-space typed notes. So not, not necessarily drafts of the story, but sort of preliminary no. questions for you. Yeah. It's, uh, it really helps to fig um, figure it out. I mean, I wrote the first section very easily, and then I spent basically a year figuring out how to go on from there. I'm just curious, um, you've written some wonderful short books, uh, Discomfort Zone, which you mentioned, which is one of my absolute favourites, to be honest. Thank you. Have you ever thought recently, you know, I could set myself the challenge of writing a novella, something really short and sharp? My friend Nell Zink, um, rather amazing writer who just suddenly burst on the scene in the last couple of years, says, you need to do exactly that, something that high school students can read. And so your book will sell by the millions forever after, and all of that money can go to bird conservation. <laughs> so um, even if it hadn't occurred to me, it has been forced upon me, that idea. And I do think about it like, yeah, well, there are a lot of high schools, and, <laughs> and, the, and birds sure need help. <laughs> Thank you for listening. To experience these conversations live, please visit brisbanepowerhouse.org for a full list of Writers and Ideas events on sale now at Brisbane Powerhouse.